Hey, uh, welcome to Canterbury Gardens Community Church. My name is Shabu. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are glad that you made the time to come. And we say this most Sundays, uh, that if you're someone who is exploring Jesus and who he is and what he's done, we pray that you, your heart's getting stirred. Maybe a friend of yours brought you along, or maybe someone just dragged you along to, to the meeting today. We pray that you will discover who this Jesus we've sung about. We've been remembering him through communion. Uh, maybe you're someone who's a follower. Maybe you haven't been to a church service for a while. Uh, maybe you have been involved in a church and you've been bit burnt uh, and you're taking the time to have a bit of a break. Whoever you are, we pray that you will know that this church is not perfect. Uh, but we believe in a perfect saviour. And we believe in a saviour who is pursuing you, wanting to stir you to know him more. And, and we as a church want to be part of that journey in your life. Uh, we as a church uh, have been taking our time through various different books of the Bible. And particularly last time we had the Gospel of John and now we thought we might actually look at another life. We looked at the life of Jesus and we wanted to look at another guy called Abraham. Uh, we, last week we, we wanted to uh, consider this idea that there is a God who will. Uh, this God who does, and this God who's involved, and this God who will make things happen. And we saw that in the very life of Abraham. This Abraham, who was not looking for God, was not really interested in God, but God calls him out. And God calls him out to follow him, uh, to follow the one and only true God, uh, the God that we as a church know, and the God that is of this Bible. And this God's call of Abraham uh, included a few promises. In, in the Bible, there's this language of covenant. Uh, and this is what we're seeing that God is revealing to Abraham, known as the Abraham covenant. Now, this is where the Abraham covenant has mainly really three parts. Firstly, there was the promise of the land. And we saw that in Genesis 12.1. Then there's the promise of descendants that are going to come uh, part in, in, in the line of Abraham. Uh, these descendants are going to be numerous. Uh, today we're going to hear about the sands and how number of that. Then you're going to hear later on about stars and we'll see that unfold. And thirdly, uh, this promise was also connected to God's big story of redemption and rescue. And that was ultimately fulfilled as we explored last week in Jesus Christ. That there was someone that was going to come. There was one that was going to come to really bless the nations. And this descendant is Jesus, the Messiah. Because only through Jesus would the world really receive a blessing from God. It's through him. Now today, we're going to actually cover two chapters. So if you have a Bible, this is going to be very important for you to grab a physical Bible. Or if you've got an app, just turn to Genesis 13 and 14. That's where we're going to be spending most of our time in this morning. Genesis 13 and 14. If you don't have a physical Bible, please grab one of, this, uh, one of these up here in the front. Uh, and if you don't actually physically have a Bible, it's our gift to you. You can, you can have it. You can keep it. Uh, so Genesis 13. Now, I'm going to read for us. Uh, and we're actually going to read all of Genesis 13 just to kind of give you a bit of a, a feel of what's going on in the story and the story of what we're going to be spending our time in. Here is God's word. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. Now, through this story, what you're going to see is you're going to see little things and lines put by the original author, the person who wrote this, to make a point. So here's in verse 2. If you have a highlighter, you highlight that. And 3. 
And he journeyed on from Negev and as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Highlight that again. And Lot went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions. were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, not parasites, parasites, were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate from yourself. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. You'd highlight that verse. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, the offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent, came and settled by the oaks of Mamer, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning, and I pray that as we spend time in the Word, that you would speak to our hearts, no matter what season we're in. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would still our hearts to gaze at the sun. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in my season of life, I've got three kids, and in our house, they actually share a room together. Uh, it's quite fascinating when they share a room together, and you put them in one room, very quickly, something happens. No, it's mine. No, it's mine. It's mine. It's mine. And there's a conflict that happens as they share the space. Now, sometimes, you know, it's because it's one person's toy while it's the other person's toy and and there's an argument that goes on. It doesn't take long before conflict happens. I mean, in the story that we have in front of us, the chapter that we just read, uh, in verse 2, we're given this picture of what's going on in Abraham's life. Uh, if you're using modern-day language, uh, Abram's portfolio is getting pretty big. Uh, his portfolio, in the sense of his cash reserve, is getting pretty, pretty big. Uh, I mean, the language in the original language actually put, uses language that is quite heavy. In other words, he's really cashed up. Okay? The author is trying to make a point here. He's uh, trying to make a point to say, hey, you remember the blessing that Abram was told? And now we're seeing, seeing his life is being applied. It's unfolding. As much as he's receiving blessing, but guess what? He's not immune to strife. And not alone that, Abram is not the only one who's actually got a lot of um, cash reserve and, and people and cattle and so on. Uh, his, his nephew, Lot, as well. 
Lot himself has quite a bit of land, uh, so people and cash reserve and, and livestock in that culture. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, you've got two very wealthy, growing groups. They're reliant on a resource in a place that they're dwelling in. They're all reliant on the same kind of resource. There's water, there's vegetation for the animals to feed. And in verse 6, it talks about the land itself could not support it. And in a sense, uh, they're really struggling to share it. And so there's conflict. Uh, There's conflict between Abraham's sort of uh, herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. It's like saying there's a work dispute going on right now. Live action in front of you. But friends, the story of the Bible is to, to, to make a point. And the point is this, is to say sin is being displayed in front of us. That's what's going on in front of us. And the reason why it's there is actually to also bring a warning and a caution to us. Uh, in that day and age, you know, this is like family clans. They're really related to each other. And rather than trying to work out what's best to serve one another, uh, they end up having a fight over, over the resources in front of them. Yeah, the, the, the land is stretched. The resources are stretched. Uh, they need to feed their cattle and so on. Um, But what we're seeing is really the picture or the echo of the story of Genesis already that's happened starting in Genesis 1 and so on. Instead of peace, uh, there's strife. And what's going on is both parties at the end of the day are really far more concerned about what they want, what they need, rather than seeing how they can serve one another. And rather than even considering who they are serving. And they actually don't realize who's the source of all these things. And actually, in the next chapter, we'll see who that source is. Actually, not Abram, let alone not Lot. And there's disunity going on between them. And this is what happens, friends, when we forget who's the giver of all things. We've become far more individualized in what matters to us. And in this moment, they're concerned about their tribe. Now, what's the solution? Well, it's interesting, you know, in the story, Lot himself is not involved in trying to bring a solution. Uh, The one who is interested is a guy called Abram, the one that we've been following in his life. And so Abram decides to come, but he offers something. And this offer is displayed in verses 8 to 13. There's a language of separation that comes. You know, in our day and age, if there's a dispute between two parties, hopefully they get resolved, but they go to a thing called VCAT, Right? They go to VCAT to try to resolve. This is the first Hebrew civil and administrative tribunal going on in front of us. It's a very bad Christian joke. Anyway, so, right? So they're having a dispute. The dispute is going on in front of them. So Abraham gets involved. And he says to to, to Lot, listen, your shepherds and my shepherds, uh, they're having a fight. Now, this is not good. Now, now, it's a bit hard for us, right? My guess is there's not many shepherds in this room, okay? Uh, maybe you've had some sort of back, background there. And uh, this kind of culture that they live in, that's not, it's very foreign to us, okay? So, Abram, firstly, is Lot's uncle. Not just an uncle, he's an older uncle. In that culture, Abram is the guy who has all the rights, so what Lot's doing is not the right thing. Uh, if you're using our day in language, Abraham has every right to go up to Lot and say, listen, buddy, pull your head in. Who do you think you are? Do you know who I am? 
But see, it's interesting what Abram says. Did you pick it up in those verses? Uh, in, your, um, in your NIV, it might say something like close relative. Uh, in the ESV, it uses the language kinsman. Uh, probably a stronger way to put it is we're brothers. Lot's not his brother. What Abram's trying to do is make a point to say, hey, we are really close. This is not right. This shouldn't be happening between you and me. And what we see in verse 9 is Abram's response is really a very gracious picture. He doesn't have to do what he's doing. And he says to, to, to Lot, listen, you look. You, what, what would you like? We, we will divide the land. And he uses the language. It's pretty strong. He says, listen, if you choose the right-hand side, I'll go to the left. If you choose the left, I will go to the right. It's a very wonderful picture of grace shown here. He offers the land, and he actually is showing mercy to Lot. Now, Lot also's response is very interesting, right? As a nephew, he's younger, this moment, culturally, uncle, no, I shouldn't be doing this. Did you see what Lot does? Oh man, he looks up. Uh, he looks to the east, is that right? Where's that east? That way. Okay, for you guys, that way. For me, this way. Geography, I, I really nearly failed at it. Anyway, so, thankful for Syrian maps. So, he looks up. He looks up into the Jordan Valley. Oh, friends, the Jordan Valley. If you're a real estate agent, location, location, location. Right? It's the place to go. If you're going to settle as a family, oof, I mean, the Jordan Valley, it's well watered. I mean, the Jordan Valley, it has the soil that is so rich and well that it actually can grow plants. That's where famous dates come. And in, in ancient history, there's ointments and things that were in that culture that was helpful. This is, this is the place to be. Now, did you notice the side note by the author? By the way, this is before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Uh, it's for us to go, oh, hold on, I know that. That's probably not a good direction. Uh, using the other language of the garden and Egypt, again, it's the author's way of saying, take note. Uh, they're trying to make a note, uh, a point for us listening in. But what we see is this picture of a man who sees something, it looks really good, and goes towards it. This comparison of the Lord's um, garden and Egypt is there for a reason. Now remember how we were reading the verses, what is the group of people, the Sodom and Gomorrah people they're described as? They are evil, right? They're wicked, great sinners against the Lord. I mean, this is where if you were sitting next to Lot saying, I know that looks good, man, but probably not a good idea. But see... Lot is far more concerned and going, man, this place looks good. I mean, there's great water. You know, I could plant my date plants and we can make lots of money. It's, a, it's a very important to be in that region. And you, you know the language that Lot says about the east? In biblical language, east is significant. So in Genesis, when Adam and Eve expel from the garden because of their sin, they head east. And when the people of Babel in Genesis 11 rebelled against God, they, they went east. 
So this idea of moving east is actually not the right direction. It is the wrong way to go. But friends, this is a really stark warning for all of us, really. Sin looks very appealing. Sin looks nice. In the language of Lot and this idea of his eyes, saw, and looks really good. If you were the original hearers, you should make your brain go, eyes, I've heard that before. Where did I hear that before? Oh, yeah. Do you remember Genesis 3? Do you remember when the serpent comes and tempts the first humans? And his words are, for God knows, in Genesis 3 verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of, your, eat of it, your eyes will be open. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In verse 6, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it and ate Friends, we may look at it and go, oh, yeah, it's a lot, seriously. But friends, that's the same even today, isn't it? My background is in marketing. I'm just letting you know there's billions and millions of dollars spent to make a product look really good. Constantly, lots of money is poured out to make something look really good to stir something in us to go, I want that. I mean, this happened to me the other day. The new iPhone's coming out. I've already got a well-working iPhone. But it's got that camera. It looks so good. Have you seen the ad? They're throwing things at it. And it's working still. I want one. But friends, in reality, what it, what it is showing, it, just, it shows the foolishness what sin does. Sin and its delights always look enticing at first, but the consequences of bowing to it, to bowing to anything, ultimately has soul-draining realities. So this guy Lot was blinded. It looked good. And what he was not realizing because he was so focused on it, he didn't realize what this meant. He was actually separating himself from Abram, and the God of Abram. Remember, God promised Abram that he'd get a blessing. In that moment, he's realizing he's walking away from that. And we'll see that in the next chapter. The consequences are immediate. But the thing is, Abram himself is looking down. In verses 14 and 18, you have this blessing that God shows up. In the previous verses, right, what's happening? Lot lifts his eyes to the east, and he sees. Did you pick up the verses? What does it say? God says to Abram, lift up your eyes. It's the same kind of expression that is repeated here. It's to say um, that Abram perhaps was thinking, the heir, this nephew is gone. He's trying to work out what, what to do, but in, in some sense he's, he's hanging on, and in faith he's trusting God, and God shows up. And says, Abram, look, lift up your eyes. And what he lifts up to is to see the whole land, north, south, east, west. And in this moment, God promises again and repeats the promise that he's already given in the previous chapter. But this time, now it's a bit more specific. 
This is the third time God reveals this to Abraham. And now he's containing three specific things. First, he promises there's going to be an heir. Would be his, not be his own seed. It's actually not Lot's seed. Now God would give the land to Abraham and his descendants forever. And finally, Abraham's descendants would be innumerable. In other ways to say you're going to have lots and lots of generations. And this idea of dust is specifically talking about physical seed. And this idea of where, where God says, wherever you walk and your foot touches, that's yours. Uh, in that time, it's like this kind of conquering army. When they touch their foot on a particular ground, it's theirs. It belongs to them. That's what's been communicated here. But notice who's doing it all. Is it Abram? God's the one who says. God's the one who blesses. And God is the one who comes up with the terms of reference. God is the one who gives uh, um, the, the terms of reference Abraham. There's no preconditions. There's no qualifications. It's a picture of God's grace and promise to Abraham's faith. This idea of trusting God and in obedience is one of the key things that you'll see in the life of Abraham. And it brings blessing. I mean, Lot gets the east, but Abraham gets it all. Lot gets a portion, but Abram gets it all. This is a picture and wonderful reminder of what God offers and his promises and his blessings are so much better than anything that what this world offers you and me, let alone what sin offers. So Abram looks to the one who asks him to lift up his eyes to what he offers. And all Lot did was to look to what was good. And friends, what we have is a picture of a God who is faithful, a God who makes his promises come true because he's involved in this. And what he asks of us is to trust him and obey him completely. Not partially, not sometimes, 100%. Why? Because of who he is. And we'll see who he is in the next chapter. This picture of Abram moving as a display of faith again. But not only that, his posture, he builds an altar to show that he is worshipping, he's thankful. And friends, in this morning, when we're thinking about Lot and this kind of thing, we need to ask some questions. What are the things in your life, in my life, that are tempting us, that are enticing us to say, look, look. What's the things that are capturing the, the, things, the hearts of our eyes? Is it power? Is it the very everyday things of lust? Maybe more, 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 particularly in our Western culture that we live in. You need that. You need that. You need this. But what it's doing really is actually invading our relationship with God. What is it that's going on in your life right now? What I'm very thankful for in the story that we see is that there is God who's very gracious. Very gracious. And in chapter 14, verses 1 to 16, what we have displayed before us is a rescue. Uh, There's some king language going on, and we're actually going to pick it up in verse 12 because I don't want to read all the king's names. And this is where we pick up the next section of the story. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, And went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamar, Amorite, brother of Exhal and Anna. They were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went and pursued as as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, 
and defeated them and pursued them, Hobah, north of Damascus. And he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. There's a coup, there's a war, there's a rebellion. Uh, the kings unite. It actually turns out really bad for them, particularly for the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And guess who's near Sodom and Gomorrah? It's, of course, Lot. And Lot is taken into captivity with the rest of his clan. It hasn't gone really well for him at all. It was a bad idea. And out of this group, one escapes and runs to Abram and tells him. And this is the first time in verse 13, I don't know if you picked it up, we see the nationality of Abram. He's described as a Hebrew. In that moment, what we're seeing also is a display of a God who is willing to rescue through people like Abram. I mean, using that language and that culture, they could have said, well, you made your bed, you lie in it. Not my problem. Because for in that day and age, for someone like Abram to cause war against this king is a bad idea, particularly in that culture. I mean, there are four armies have joined and created a coalition. And Abram is saying, okay, we need to go and rescue my kingsmen. It talks about him having 318 trained men. It's a picture to say, hey, listen, they're they're outnumbered. It's actually not a good idea. This is a moment where Lot should have been left alone, but no, Abram goes after his kingsmen. It's a picture of God's grace displayed. And in that moment, we see God comes through. I mean, the story of the Bible constantly, particularly in the life of the people of Israel, they're constantly outnumbered. And God always comes through. Because ultimately, as they were described in Sodom and Gomorrah and the people around that nation, evil will not win. In that moment, what we're seeing is evil versus God. God uses Abraham, a man of faith, who knew he had to rescue not just his nephew, but his kinsman, a brother. Do you remember the story of what the blessings were? I will curse who I will curse. You curse, I will curse them. God is with Abram. This is God's kindness on Lot. What we have displayed is a man who shouldn't have gone that way, but yet now gets himself in trouble and God steps in and uses Abram to rescue him. Friends, that is the story of God. He's always rescuing. God is in the business of rescuing people. He always has been and always will be. And through this, in this story, is through this man of faith called Abram. And finally, we come up to verses 17 to 24, and we meet two kings. We meet two kings. One king wants to bless, while the other king wants to receive. In verses 17 to 14, after this return from the defeat of Shaldemor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavar, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, my most high, uh, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, 
I've lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Eshol, and Mamer take their share. Friends, in this moment, what we meet is firstly a king that is fairly significant in the story of the Bible. I don't think Abraham fully understood that at that time. We meet King Melchizedek. He's not only king, he's also a priest. Now, who is he the priest of? The Most High God. Now, remember, a few verses before that, Abraham is described as a Hebrew. So this guy shows up what we know about him firstly is that this is before the temple this is before levitical priests this is a worshiper of god and not only a worshiper of god he's a priest to god meaning that he actually is someone who goes and worships the one and only true god most people would say maybe was coming from the area of canaan but when he comes he comes and brings with him not only the, the bread and the wine. And this bread and wine is a symbol and action in that time of, of covenant. It's covenant language that's been displayed here. And then you carry that on. He comes and blesses Abraham. Did you pick up what he blesses Abraham? Did you see the kingly, as a kingly priest, how he does it? It's a reminder of what God has already done. That God has done this. Remember the language, I will bless those who bless you. This is this picture showing now for us. Abram is being blessed by this king who is priest. This king who is both priest and king uses this symbol of the bread and wine to proclaim this covenant. Not only that, he's not proclaimed to just some God, he's proclaiming to the true God. The one who has fought evil and the one who has won, who has done it. And it's shown in the response of Abram. Abram gives 10% of everything. Now, whether if that's the spoils or whether it's that literally everything that he has as a rich man, the point is this. There's a significant picture of Melchizedek that's given. He's not just a priest. It's a significant thing. It's a way of Abram showing uh, that he will bless Melchizedek. This act of tithing is actually part of his worship. He also understands that there's something significant. The Melchizedek is higher than him. So one king blesses, while the other king, he wants. He wants people, resources. He just had a war. He wants people, resources. I'll give you lots of things, Abram. And the way that Abram responds, of, hold on, stop. This is a way of saying, I've made an oath. I'm not going to make a deal with you. Because I know who has rescued us. The God who is the possessor of heaven and earth. In this moment he's saying, my victory is actually not mine. All this prosperity that I have, the things that I have are actually not mine. It's actually all God's. You know, it's a wonderful picture because, you know, it shows us that in that moment of great victory and, and triumph, sin is not far away. Temptation is not far away. Sin always paints this picture, she'll be right, what's the big deal? Give them some people. It doesn't matter. But yet attaching yourself to anything that is totally opposite of God is like wrapping a poisonous snake around your hand and hoping that it doesn't kill you. It's a really bad idea. 
It's a reminder to us the blessing is actually from God's gracious hand. It's a provision from Him. It's not something that we can boast in. It's all His gift. And this is why we need to remember the God that He speaks of is still the God today. The God is still the most high and possessor of heaven and earth. And what we have is this in front of us. Friends, do we see it that way, that God owns everything? Or you and I tempted still to say, hey, look, God, look what I have done. Friends, what's enticing you today? What's asking you to partner with them? Will it really bring glory to God? But in this very moment, what God is about to display is his great big story. So you know what? Satan and evil always desires to be king. Sin desires to be the king of your life, to tempt you to say that you can be your own king. Yet God in this moment is hinting to unveil for us his big story. Do you know the story of Melchizedek would come again? He would show up again. Actually, another king actually writes about him in Psalm, Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, King David writes, The Lord has sworn, will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, the order of Melchizedek. David is speaking of a priest who is king, both Lord, it's a picture of a priesthood that lasts forever. And it's just a picture of what is to come. It's pointing forward. I mean, who is this priest that David is speaking of? Who is this king that David is speaking of? Because later on, there would one that would come. So Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. Well, guess what? There was one that is to come. He's the king whose name also means righteousness. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Salem means the king of peace. Well, guess what? There is one who has come, the king of peace. The one who is righteous, who is the king of peace, what's his name? Jesus. Later on, the writer of Hebrews would unpack for us in Hebrews 7, 1 to 28. And I, we don't have time to go on it today. I'm already a bit over time. Unpacks who this Melchizedek is. We see in Hebrews 7, in verses 15 to 22, as the Hebrew writer is un- unveiling for us, he's just explained who Melchizedek is through the story of Abram, quotes again in Psalm 110 and verse 17, then talks about the law and there's a need for someone else to come, a bright, greater, better priest, and says in verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Friends, Abraham is a wonderful story. He's a man of faith, definitely, but we need a king and a priest, a one who would be like a Melchizedek, one who came as the righteous king and priest, the one who bought, came into this world, died on the cross for you and me, this king who would provide a better covenant And that's why we do it in communion. It's a symbol of that, is it not? This new covenant that we're under. That's what's being displayed here. And we know that salvation is not based on what we do, but it's through faith alone. It's not based on a law. The line of priests that he speaks of in Hebrews talks two lines. The idea is there is someone better in the line, another line. His name is Jesus. We need one who is willing to come into this world. We need one who is the bread of life, who spilled his blood on that cross for you and me. 
this one who opened the way for us, be in relationship with the creator of the universe. This one, to this day, sits on the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. This one who is king and priest. This one who is willing to ransom himself. The one who actually came into this world, not only to save the Abrahams, but also the Lot's. People like you and me. Followers of Christ. As you and I live in this world, something that we need to remember is we still need this kingly priest, don't we? We need him every day. We need to go to him every day and cry out to him. If you're a seeker exploring the Christian faith, I just want you to know rejection of living under his loving authority has a time limit. Not only offers you eternal life, he actually offers you grace day by day. So friends, as you head into this week, are there things that you need to look away from rather than looking to those things that you need to look to our priestly king? Parents, as we raise our kids, do we need to confess the real importance that they have, that is they need a priestly king and to put their faith in him? Friends, if you're a business owner, manager, someone who has great authority in your workplace, where is there temptation for you to partner with things that are not God-glorifying at all? Maybe the Lord is saying partner with him, this priestly king. And then he calls all of us to join us in his mission to rescue the lots who've got themselves captured, enslaved in sin and evil. Abraham was a man of faith in a God who would provide not just for him, but for us. A priestly king who now sits on the right hand of the Father, who's interceding on behalf of you and me. This is why we sing songs about him. This is why we read and see where Jesus is. This is why we have communion. And this is why we proclaim this. The everlasting, great priestly king. This is Jesus. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are, a great priest and king. We thank you that you are seated on the right hand of the Father, and the things of the Old Testament are shadows pointing to you. For us to be men and women of faith, empower us through your spirit to do that today and this week and until you call us home. You're the one who is without beginning or end of days. And we yearn for your return until that day. We sing, we live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.